All right, we're going to be in Isaiah 44 this morning. Isaiah 44. Um, this is week two in our Desires of the Heart sermon series. Last week, we laid some groundwork looking at idols, asking the questions, what is an idol and why is it so bad? Um, this week, we're going to be looking together at the foolishness of idol worship and all of this before we ever get to potentially the specific idols that exist in our lives. We're laying some groundwork to get ready. So today we're going to be looking at the foolishness um, of those things. And for most of us, we're still trying to figure out, are there idols in my heart? What, what idols are potentially am I harboring in my heart? And so we're going to do this groundwork today. But I want to begin with a quote from Blaise Pascal. If you don't know who that is, you can go look it up later. But here's what he said about the pursuit of happiness. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. Now, this is a secular perspective on what we're talking about when we talk about idols, the pursuit of happiness in things. And what Pascal would propose is that every human being on earth is pursuing happiness. We do it in different ways. We look for it in different areas. We look for it in different pursuits. But ultimately, what guides every step of our lives is the pursuit of happiness, and in that box of happiness is joy and peace and comfort and, and all those other things that drive our lives. And some think they'll find it in a successful career. Others think they'll find it in a successful relationship. But the driving force of both is the pursuit of happiness. Well, today we're going to look in Isaiah 44 at what God says about the foolishness of idol worship. And so if you, you have your Bible open, you may see the title above this section says, uh, verse 9 above that says, the folly of idolatry. That's another way of saying the foolishness of worshiping idols. Well, let's start in verse 9, reading verses 9, 10, and 11 together. Isaiah says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now, before we get to the heart of those three verses, let's, let's walk through a couple of things that we already have covered. First of all, idol worship is never exclusively about you. It will always impact the people around you, especially the people that you love the most. And this is what Isaiah is saying to us, that it's going to impact all the witnesses, all those people in your life are going to be impacted by our idol worship. But the main thing I want to cover here is verse 10, who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Um, a little story. I, we've got two boys. Our youngest is Calvin. He's six. And last summer, he had a minor surgery where they had to put him under, do some corrective surgery, um, and then he came back out, okay? 
And so um, because of the area where this surgery was, mom and dad had to prep him about how we need to talk about this surgery, and here's what they're going to do, and they're going to put you to sleep, and the doctor's going to cut on you and do some things, and he's going to put you back together, then you're going to wake up, and they're going to give you popsicles, okay? So we, we prepped him for the surgery. And uh, all Calvin really knew going into this, and all he talked about was he couldn't wait to get out of surgery and get three popsicles, because his brother had had surgery the month before, and they gave him two. And he could not wait to get to the, to the part where he could start downing popsicles. So we prepped him about the surgery. We told him all about it. And so he wakes up from surgery, right? And you're always anxious about what they're going to say and how they're going to act and, and all the little funny things. And so Calvin was just coming to, and he was talking very, you know, normal, wasn't acting goofy. And how you feel? And I feel good. Are you in pain? No. Here's your first popsicle. Boom, it's down. Well, the nurse goes and gets the second popsicle and brings him his second popsicle. And as he's wrapping it up and he's getting ready to down the second popsicle, she says, um, Calvin, I'm going to take a look at your surgery. Just see how it's looking. He goes, okay. So she rolls down the covers and has to you know, look at his surgery. And, uh, and so after a moment of like licking his popsicle, he finally realized that something was going on. He looks down and he sees where he had surgery. I'll never forget the words that came out of his mouth. He looks down and he has this popsicle. He looks down and he said, are you serious? You cut me with a knife? Why would you do that? And this poor, like, post-op, cook's nurse, just the sweetest little girl trying to make all the little babies feel welcome and comforted after surgery. She's like, she had popsicle on her hand. She didn't know what to do. She, I didn't do that to you, Calvin. The doctor did. <laughs> Never forget that moment when he realized, you cut me with a knife. Why would you do that? Well, in some ways, I, I feel that same kind of humor and, and coming out of the passage we just did with this rhetorical question in verse 10, who fashions a God or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Isaiah saying, who would do that kind of thing? It's dumb. Yet, in each of our lives, there exists these idols, these things, these ideas, these relationships or accolades, things we're chasing after to pursue happiness in. Now, what Isaiah's going to do for us is he's going to break this down into two illustrations. First, he's going to use an iron worker to kind of illustrate um, how idol worship works and the foolishness of it. And then he's going to use the idea of a carpenter to kind of illustrate for us the foolishness of harboring and latching on to idols in our life. Uh, starting in verse 12, he says, the iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and he works it with a strong arm. That all sounds kind of like what an iron worker would do, right? Nothing peculiar about that. He puts metal in fire, heats it up, throws it on the anvil, and he hammers it. But here's what Isaiah would say. All the while, though, he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And what Isaiah wants to do is he wants to illustrate for us that what happens when we pursue satisfaction in idols is that we actually end up hungrier and thirstier and lonelier and more desperate on the back end. What it seems like is going to bring us comfort, bring us pleasure, fulfill us in the beginning, on the back end, actually, not only, doesn't, not only does it not fill us up, it leaves us more empty. And so while the iron worker is there beating this thing out, trying to fashion something, right, that will bring him joy and comfort and become his idol, all the while, what's happening? He's sacrificing his own health, right? 
idol worship, right, comes at great cost, not just to us, right, but at the, at the lives of those who live around us, those who love us and who we love the most. And so he would say, as the ironsmith works hard at creating his idol, all the while he's becoming emptier and emptier and emptier. What a vain and, 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 and foolish pursuit, right? Now there's a problem, though, is he doesn't see it that way. And so now what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to use a carpenter to illustrate this. So in verse 13, we read this. The carpenter. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes, and he marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Now, what Isaiah is illustrating for us is this, is that we never trip and fall into idol worship. It's, it's always, right, the result of a long and intentional pursuit. Most of us that have idols in our heart, things that we have allowed to become ultimate to us, um, was a pursuit that, we, that began when we were kids, right? The first time we got hurt, we got lonely, we felt needs, right? If we didn't turn those needs towards God, what did we do? We, we look for ways to cope. We look for ways to kind of self-medicate. And for some of us, that was maybe, yeah, drugs, alcohol, sex. Others of us, it was withdrawing from the crowd or, right, or isolating yourselves or trying to become the class clown or, right? And so we do these desperate things early on, and we don't realize all the while we're taking these small steps of creating idols. And the way he illustrates it here, he says, here's, here's the foolishness of idol worship. The carpenter, he actually begins by going out and planting trees, he watches the trees go, maybe some cypress or some oaks, and as they grow, he picks the best one, the one that looks like it has the best grain. He harvests the tree, takes it home, but he doesn't just start cutting on it right away, does he? No, he draws some blueprints. He plans out what he's going to create for himself. He stretches out the line. He takes the plane. He shapes it, takes his time, and begins to carve and whittle until he has this idol. And now it's beginning to sound a little bit foolish. Why? Because he creates an idol of a human being. Right? Even a good-looking guy, and he takes it in his house. And the point that Isaiah wants us to see is that, that, that our worship of idols doesn't happen overnight. It's often rooted in our experiences in life, oftentimes our experiences as, kid, as kids. Um, and when I think about idol worship, I think about that scene from Castaway, if you're familiar with the Tom Hanks movie, but... Right, he's, he's marooned on an island, has right, all these needs, hunger, water, shelter. But what was one of his deepest needs? Right? Companionship. And so he finds the volleyball, right? this Wilson volleyball, and he, it's got like a handprint on it, and he begins to kind of wipe the, the, the blood off of the, 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 the volleyball until there's eyes and nose and an ear, and then he begins to talk to it. Now, at first, it's just, you know, casual conversation and comfort. But by the end, if you remember the raft scene where he loses the volleyball, like, go back and watch that scene. Like, like only Tom Hanks can make you tear up and cry over a volleyball. But he loses Wilson off the raft. And if you remember, in desperation, he jumps. And he's fatigued, no energy, jumps in to save Wilson. And he realizes, oh, I can't save Wilson and stay alive. And so he goes back and grabs the raft and tries to grab the raft. And it's a futile pursuit to get to Wilson. And do you remember him crying out? Wilson! Do you remember what he said? Wilson, I'm sorry! 
He's apologizing to a volleyball, right? How ridiculous is that? And that's what Isaiah wants us to see about our idol worship. It's ridiculous, it is foolish, and it never satisfies. And as we see with the carpenter, it oftentimes comes um, at the end of a series of decisions that were made. You know, the Bible says that we don't just trip and fall and sin. Sin happens, right, as a, as a series of decisions that we make. Matter of fact, in Romans 13, verse 13, we read this. Paul says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in, and then he's going to list some things. Here's what he means, okay? He says, like, when we walk in the daytime, we walk in transparency, we're not hiding things. Because when you walk in the night, you're walking in darkness, you're hiding stuff. He said, hey, let's don't do that, church. Let's walk as if it's daytime with our lives. And then he says, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and look at what he says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What is Paul saying? We don't just trip and fall into satisfying or trying to gratify the desires of our flesh. It's you make provisions for it. Like the carpenter, we make decisions, we, right, we harvest the tree, we, we plan it out, we plot it out. And, and for so many of our lives, when we think about idol worship, right, we have to look at this long series of decisions that we made. For example, hypothetical, there might be somebody in here who has made an idol out of your career. That didn't happen overnight. It began potentially as a dream or an ambition early on, and you made provisions for it, and you, you mapped it out, and you went to school and you went to college or you went into the military, you went into some field and you begin to work your way towards that goal and that dream. What the Bible would say is that if you ever reach it, when you ever reach it, it won't satisfy you. It'll leave you hungry, but you didn't just get there overnight. You plotted out a course. Not only that, this is what makes discovering idol worship so difficult. Um, if you think about it, because it's a series of small decisions over time, plotting out a course. It takes a long time for a tree to grow, doesn't it? Yeah. I always think about the frog and the boiling water illustration. I've never tried this for the record, so I don't know if it works. But they say, if you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water, he's going to do everything he can to get out, right? However, if you put the frog in the pot of water while it's lukewarm and you heat it up slowly over time, what happens? The frog is unaware that all the while he's about to die, become frog legs, right? In somebody's plate. And so I think the same, that principle applies here when we think about idol worship. It makes it so hard for us to discover them because we've been at this for a long time. We've been chipping away and carving away and planning and plotting for a long time. Idol worship always comes at the end of a series of decisions. Now, verse 15 is where Isaiah is really going to pull back the curtains on how goofy and foolish it is to worship anything other than the one true God. Look at what he says. Okay, so he's carved it all out, and he's got these shavings and sawdust. He's got the rest of the tree laying around this idol. He says, well, then it becomes fuel for a man, right? So he takes part of that same tree, and he begins to burn it. He takes a part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread, and also he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. And you feel kind of the irony of that? Got this big, beautiful tree, cutting up part of it to do what? To start a fire, to warm myself, to use it the way God intended it to be used. Bake some bread, right? That's what wood was supposed to be for. 
But with part of it, he creates an idol. And it's not just this creative piece of art that he puts up for display. He begins to bow down and worship it. Now, we should, you know, that should cause us to stop and go, that man's foolish. Doesn't he know that this idol he's worshiping came out of the same chunk of wood, right, that's heating up his bread? That's foolish, isn't it? Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied, and also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Sounds again like Tom Hanks, doesn't it? I have made fire. That's, that's not goofy. That's what you're supposed to do with wood, right? Ah, I made fire. I'm warm. I made cook some bread. But look at what else he says. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it, and he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Now things just got goofy. He's got a block of wood in his one hand, a block of wood in the other hand. With this hand, he's saying, I'm going to make a fire, I'm going to make some bread. With the other hand, he's saying what? Deliver me. Make me happy. Make me comfortable. Fix my life. Right? How, how goofy is that? How foolish is that? Here's what we have to understand. Trees aren't bad things, are they? They're good things that God created to be used for things like warming yourself and cooking bread and hanging bird feeders from them and enjoying when you're out walking down in nature. It's a good thing. But here's where idol worship happens. When we take a good thing created by God and we make it an ultimate thing. When you take the same object that God intended to be a blessing for your life, to bring satisfaction, right, and all of a sudden you turn it into something ultimate. You can't be happy unless you have it. This is why the Ten Commandments begins with what? You shall have no other gods before me. Because if you get that one wrong, if anything else becomes ultimate, you might as well scrap the other nine. This is why when Jesus is, is kind of nailed down, what's the most important uh, commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with how much? All, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That's the greatest commandment, right? Because if you mess that one up, right, you're not going to love anybody, right? You're not going to love your wife well, your children well, your coworkers well. You're not going to go serve uh, those who are hurting and broken and suffering, and, right? You're, you're going to be all about you. Idol worship occurs when we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. And this is what Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 1. If you're familiar with the opening of the letter to the church in Rome, here's what Paul says about worship. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sounds familiar, right? We're talking about this foolish guy who's worshiping this idol. Here's, what, here's why they became fools. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, are birds bad things? Are birds evil? No, right? So it's a good thing God created, but it wasn't created to be ultimate. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what's happening in Isaiah 44, right? He took something God created good 
Right, and now what's he doing? He's, he's carved him a little chunk of wood out of there. Now he's creating, the, or he's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. He took something good and he made it ultimate. This is what makes our idol worship so stinking foolish. So many of us have made idols out of relationships, right? Think about it. Think about the relationship you're in and all the effort you went through for most of us, anyway, we've got to go through a lot of effort uh, to attain that relationship, right? Guys, you see the girl, right? You're out with a group of friends or you're in a certain situation, you're at work, you see her, right? You don't just walk up and lay it all out there, do you? No. You, get at, you plot, you plan, you think, how can, I, how can I get in front of her so she notices me without seeming too desperate, too overbearing, but also interested, right? Because I don't want to think I'm not interested. And how, how am I going to get her number? You know, how am I going to make my intentions known without freaking her out and running her off? And so you come with these plans, you devise a scheme, right? Don't, you're looking at me like you don't do this, right? <laughs> Ladies, you too. And you plot it out and you plan it out. And when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it will never satisfy you. Trust me. If you've been married more than 13 minutes, right, you know that what you hope to get from that person isn't going to happen. They can't deliver it. Just like a block of wood can't deliver you, that relationship, that spouse, those children will not deliver you. They may actually add more heartache and suffering to your life, right? It happens. It happens. God is saying, when you take anything good that I created and turn it into something ultimate, you've engaged in idol worship. You plot it out, you plan it out, you devise a scheme, you carry out your plans. Some of those plans take years to accomplish, which A, makes it really hard to detect where an idol is, and B, makes it incredibly difficult to let go of them. Could we just be honest about that? I mean, we haven't even laid any idols out there, really, for us to start considering, but they're they're hard to detect, and when we find them, the last thing we want to do is let go of them. We've invested so much into becoming this thing or attaining this thing or earning this position or chasing after this. And the last thing we want to do is let go of it. And what happens is the smoke screen, which is what we're going to read about next, verse 18. Verse 18, this is about those who worship idols. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. Now, what is, this, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying, unless God opens our eyes, we can't even see these things. That's why at the beginning of every sermon I preach, I know it gets a little routine for me to, to pray that. Some of you have been here for a while. I pray that every Sunday. God, open our eyes. Why? Because we need God to open our eyes. If we could see this stuff on our own, we wouldn't need to come here together and open the Bible. We need God to unveil. Why? Because there's a smoke screen in the way. Right? And here's the, here are the smoke screens I most often hear uh, in my own justification, the justification of others. Here, here, here are the two things that I hear. This is a good thing. Right? My job is a good thing. God blessed me with this job so I can earn money for my family. I work hard on my job. It's a good thing. How could a good thing become an idol? It's a good thing. Right? These little children of mine, they're good things. How could they become idols? And the second thing that I hear is this is necessary for me to live. I have to have this. I have to have this. It's necessary. And we've convinced ourselves of these two things. And what happens is these lies that we're reading about in Romans 1, Isaiah 44, they become a smokescreen. Right? And behind the smokescreen are lying these idols. And these idols do not want to be discovered. 
Verse 19, it becomes even more obvious. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? We're reading this story. How ridiculous is that? Carve out a piece of wood, some image, and you start talking to it, expecting to do things. And what Isaiah is saying is there's a blindness, there's a smoke screen. Nobody's able on their own strength to discern that, right? That in one hand, I got a block of wood for, fire, for food and fire. On the other hand, I got this abomination that I'm worshiping. We need God to unveil. We need God to roll back that smoke screen. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And can, he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, so what that means, if, if, I, if the word of God is true, and if what Isaiah is saying is true, and I believe it's true, then what that means is that the idols in our hearts are probably not even on your radar right now. Already two weeks in, you're probably beginning to think about Hey, what what could some of those things be? And maybe some things have already come to mind. But the truth of the matter is that more than likely, there are things hidden that haven't even come up in our minds. And so last week, I asked you as a church to pray with me this simple prayer. Just God, give me a willing heart to explore this topic. Just give me a willing heart to take a journey with you and see where you would lead and what you might display or expose in my life. Because none of us is able to say, look at that, an idol. I've got a lie in my right hand. We need the merciful, gracious help of God to expose that, to pull back the smokescreen. Now, I love where Isaiah 44 ends because it ends in hope, right? Because up to this point, we're kind of stuck. We've got all these idols in our lives. We don't even know what they are, and we can't even see them on our own. We don't have the discernment to realize what they are, but Isaiah takes us to the gospel in verse 21. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. Now, that's Old Testament talk for remember these things, church. Remember these things, my people. Remember these things, church, for you are my servant. I formed you. You're mine. You're my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by who? Me. So what is God saying about the carpenter? Yeah, the carpenter has lost sight of who I am, and he's forgotten me for a moment, but I haven't forgotten him. This is what God is saying to us. You, You may have forgotten about me, but I have not forgotten you. There's hope in that, isn't there? I mean, that's the, that's the imagery of the prodigal son who left home and forgot his dad, but did the dad ever forget the son? No. When the prodigal son was on his way home, the dad didn't have to go out and reintroduce himself and say, you look familiar. Do I know you? What happened? The, the father immediately recognized his son because he hadn't forgotten him. He left everything behind and chased after him. Church, this is what God is saying about us despite the fact that maybe we've gone astray or we've pursued happiness and joy and security and things other than him, God's saying to you, listen, I know you've forgotten me. I haven't forgotten you. I have not forgotten you. I formed you. How could I forget you? 
I have not forgotten you. Verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. Why? For I have redeemed you. That's good news. This is not the devastation and desperation that ends in verses 18 through 20 where we're just stuck. God's saying, you're not stuck. You've forgotten me. You've lost sight of me, but I haven't lost sight of you. And so this leaves us with one final question I want to answer today then. What do we do with all this? How do we find and discover idols in our life? And once we find them, how do we put those things to death? How do we put those things away? How do we loosen our grip on idols? I want to read Colossians chapter 3, first few verses with you. You can turn there or you can, you can follow on the screen. This is what Colossians says, chapter 3, verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, and that is a, a biblical phrase that means if you're a Christian, you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've given your life to him. If you're in Christ, okay, so if you have been raised with Christ, then seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives us some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. So how do we put sin to death? How do we put idols to to death, he says it there in the first few verses. Seek things that are where? Above. Not things on earth. He didn't say, don't, don't seek evil things. That's how you do this. He said, what? Fix your eyes on Christ. Seek things that are above. And we sang about it last week, church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And what happens to the things of this world? They grow strangely dim. Right? So we don't, we're not going to overcome sin in our lives or over, overcome idol worship by going on a witch hunt and trying to discover them in our own willpower and stop doing it. It's not going to happen that way. The only way we are set free is by fixing our mind on things that are above, turning our affections towards Christ. And then here's what happens. The things of this world go strangely dim. Then those good things that became ultimate things go back to being what? Good things. Right? So if you've made an idol out of your marriage, God doesn't want you to get a divorce. He wants you to fix your eyes on Christ. And then that ultimate thing will go back to being a good thing. Right? If you've made an idol out of your children, God doesn't want you to put them up for adoption or kick them out. That's not the solution. He wants you to make Christ ultimate, fix your mind on things that are above, and here's what happens. Then those children will go strangely dim. They'll go back to just being good things. Your career, your job, the block of wood, Right? Why? Because we turn good things into ultimate things. And Christ said, I alone deserve to be on that throne in your life. When you fix your eyes on me, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, then the things of this world will go strangely dim. That's how we put idols to death. That's how we put sin to death. C.S. Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The C.S. Lewis's way of describing idol worship. 
when you've chased after things and satisfaction and joy in things and you get the thing and it doesn't satisfy, then you move on to another thing. What C.S. Lewis is, eventually you should come to this conclusion. I must not have been made for this world. If the things of this world can't satisfy me and bring me peace and joy, then I must have been made for a different world. Elise Fitzpatrick, Christian biblical counselor, says it this way. She says, when we look to Jesus in faith, worship, and grateful obedience, when we do that, we fix our eyes on Christ in faith, worship, and grateful obedience, we have access to the very thing that every or that human beings seek everywhere else and fail to find. I'm going to read that again. When we look to Jesus in faith, worship, and grateful obedience, we have access to the very thing that human beings seek everywhere else and fail to find. Now, I want to land with this. Last week we landed with, you know, would you pray this with me? God, give me a willing heart. This week, what I, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to pray with me and pray as a church. Um, God, would you begin to pull back the smoke screen? Would you begin to pull back the facade? Would you begin to pull back the, the things that I've put in my life to hide the idols? And you might even be honest today. I don't even know what the idols are, God, but would you begin to pull back the smoke screen so I can begin to see these things that I've made ultimate? And so I want to ask you to pray that with me today. Um, and uh, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to hear this, that what we found in Jesus is so much better than anything else that you could place in your life. I'm not assuming anything about you other than this. If you have not met the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not found the thing that is ultimate, the thing that will truly satisfy you. And today, through faith in Jesus, you can have everything. And so if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to, um, when we stand and sing, our worship team's going to come forward, and I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be at the front and at the back of the room. And while we're singing, if that's you and you want to become a Christian today, I want you to go grab one of our prayer partners you guys can slip into one of our prayer and counseling rooms, talk about what it means to be a Christian. They can pray with you and help guide you in that decision. Don't leave here today, right? Like the, like the ironsmith, still unsatisfied, still looking for purpose and meaning in the world out there. God is telling you right now where to find that. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm praying that you'll make that decision today. Worship team, if you guys, you want to come on up and, and prayer team. I just want to guide us in a time of prayer and and then we're going to let God just move and respond to that. Uh, let's pray together. Um, God, thank you for uh, the way you're already moving in our lives. Um, God, thank you for softening up our hearts. Um, God, so many of us, including me, we're like the carpenter, God. We're blind. We don't even see the things that we've made into idols. And so, God, we need your help. And our prayer in unity today, God, is that you would begin to pull back the smokescreen of our hearts, whatever survival mechanisms we've put in place, whatever coping mechanisms we've put in place, you begin to, to, to see through those and, and expose what's behind. God, for any person here today who has not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, I pray that decision will be made. You give that person the courage to just to to step out of their seat and find one of our prayer partners and make that decision today. Holy Spirit, would you move through this room? Would you move in our hearts? We pray all this in Jesus' name.